0: I have a love-hate relationship with St. Augustine of Hippo, and every time I'm ready to try to surrender to my desire to excuse him from any further participation in my life of devotion to Christ, to my Lord and his Lord, and that desire makes itself known every day, these lines, these phrases, really, this one simple breath, this wisp of a prayer comes to my mind and deters that determination. This is how Augustine penned that prayer. "Facisti nos ad te et inquietum est cor nostrum donec requiescat in te. Or to put it another way, you've made us for you, and disquieted is our heart until it rests in you. It's put more mellifluously in the collect we have heard, a new collect, even though this little wisp of a prayer was woven into Augustine's autobiography, the Confessions put onto paper in 397 A.D. You have made us for you, you have made us for yourself. Disquieted is our heart, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you, until they find their rest in you. Now, where do we find this in Scripture? You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Everywhere, I would suggest. And if the task of the preacher is not so much to talk about the text, but to talk about what the text is about, then I believe that today's texts are all about setting up the task of setting forth this truth that God has made us for himself, and nothing will give us a moment's peace until our hearts are open and received full of his presence. One of these texts is the gospel text that has been given us today. Now, one Praise one uh, verse within this text particularly fascinates me that's Mark 9:49 for everyone will be salted with fire there's something about that text that just makes me want to gravitate to it what does it mean to salt with fire surely something that is salted may only be salted with salt surely why do we salt anything to make it taste better obviously if we are ignoring our physician's reminder that salt is also useful for preserving organic matter, especially meat, and it does its work of resisting decay and decomposition by drawing out moisture, and that work is better done on our flesh when we are dead than we are alive. (laughs) And salt will do just as well to kill us as it will to cure us. Now, is that what Jesus is saying? Well, yes, that's the long and short of it. Actually, no one has any idea about what Jesus means by the phrase, for everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, Let me back True, That's not quite true. Any biblical commentary has lots of ideas, and he's going to write even when he has no idea. There's a preacher in everyone. Every commentator who has looked at this text has some idea of what it means, but no two commentators can agree on what the meaning is, which leaves someone like me basically nowhere. So, we're preaching on Augustine? No? Well, yes. But this text, this bigger text, this text we've just read in Mark 9, and you can open to it if you want. I will be weaving in and out of it. Mark 9, beginning at 38 and going to 50. This text, with its weaving together of the ideas of fire and salt, The text which immediately precedes and follows it, its contextual cradle with its evocations of the salt of the earth, the salt which was thrown on sacrifices which themselves were thrown into the fire, the fires therefore that burn perpetually at the top of the temple mount where these sacrifices of grain and animals are made, the fire that allegedly, no one can prove it, Uh, smoldered perpetually in the Hinnom Valley at the foot of the Temple Mountain, that great garbage dump which was placed on the site where fires burned in sacrifice to Moloch, in which children were consigned to walk those flames. They never made it out. Sacrifices in which God's covenant people participated when their restless hearts had once again been drawn away from the God who resided up on the top of the hill, who made them for himself. The themes weave together. And now it is fire, not salt, that captivates the preacher. Fire and sacrifice. And the idea behind sacrifice, consecration. And a word comes to me which I think establishes a boundary for this. A single word is the Hebrew word karem, which means devotion, consecration, making something holy by surrendering it to God, giving it to God. The word harem, unfortunately, does not occur in our texts. But I think our texts are all about harem. Let's step further back before we get into that. What is the context for the context of this text? That means, what happened last week? Well, I remember Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples are at Jesus asking who is the greatest, not even who is great or who will be great or how do we get to be great, No, the question really is, which one of us shall be the greatest one, Lord? After you, of course. Which one of us will be number two? Which means, when you get your palace and your throne and your standing army and the power, prestige, and possessions which come to the Davidic king, which one of us gets first choice of what's left over? Who will be vice president? Who gets secretary of state and then... Who gets stuck with secretary of transportation or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Agriculture. No. These are real concerns for the disciples. As they hasten to the glory they anticipate, they stumble over this and over one another. Their hearts are restless. Why is this? Because desires that are not anchored in God's heart and linking our hearts to God's are desires that are basically free, like free radicals. Desire is imitative. We learn to desire from other people. Two kids in a room full of toys will be always fighting over the same toy. It's a law of nature, and the Bible magnificently expounds this story again and again with all the rivalries that come to bear. Somebody has something, but they're not really happy with it unless somebody else wants what they have. And it doesn't matter what that thing is. That's the basis in which our unanchored desire propagates itself and makes us perpetually restless. Something Madison Avenue figured out a long time ago. So the disciples' hearts are restless. They're in competition. Their hearts are no longer resting on or in Jesus. They are now looking for God in all the wrong places. And we call that sin. Looking for God in all the wrong places. Looking to quench the fire that burns within, the fire of desire that draws us back to the God who made us and made us for himself, just for himself, only for himself, and getting caught up instead, getting set afire, ablaze for something else, anything else. Good things, maybe, but things, tokens of power, prestige, possession, even the things of God but not God himself, not the God who made those good things and made them good and made us good and made us to rule them and serve him and one another, and not to serve ourselves and those things, those empty tokens that in the end, when our remains are salted with fire, we shall have to cash in. No, says Jesus. Better reconsecrate yourselves. Better devote yourselves to the task you have been given. And if your desires are wayward and unruly, as all desire is when it is divested from God and invested in things, and even people can be things, objects to be used in our pursuit of power, prestige, and possessions, when your eye has been drawn, or your hand is outstretched, or your foot has started to lead you there, consecrate them, says Jesus. Reconsecrate your desires, consign them to the fire or to the sword. Better you do it, or try to, God help you, than that having resisted resisting, your whole being will be tossed on the trash heap to burn forever. The word harem, consecrate, is a word which is used of the whole concept of consecration as it applies to those things which are deemed useful to God and those things which are not deemed useful. The city of Jericho, is an example of harem. God says, go into that city and destroy every living thing in it. There is no use in that city for me, for anyone there. So they will be consecrated to me by the sword and by fire. That city is to be burned to nothing because I have no use for those people. Now that same word expresses the other side of that concept simply consecrating to God that which is useful to God, which will bring him glory. But the message in all this is better you do the consecration than have it done to you. In other words, how do you cut off these arms and feet, pluck out these eyes, disengage, release yourself from the hold the things you desire have on you? That's the question. And I think we all ponder at Jesus' words, at the strength of his words. We know they're not meant to be taken literally, but we know that there's a force in them which demands such a powerful expression. How do we release ourselves from being entangled in all those things which do not lead us back to the heart of God those things which make us restless those things which never satisfy those things which lead us only to the pursuit of more things and that is everything that doesn't lead us to God well there's much written about struggling with temptation and with sin of Mortifying sin, of killing the sin within you, and that's wonderful and it's very heroic stuff. I try to consecrate the things that tempt me one way or the other. I try to reconsecrate them, to redevote them and myself. Let me explain. I don't go within to where that fire of temptation is burning, never go within. To fight the fire, you get burned yourself if you try to do that. I don't try to douse the flames or stomp them out. I do try to fight fire with fire, to use a concept which is rooted in the techniques firefighters have used from time immemorial when trying to put fires out both in forests, in brushland, and in cities. What does it mean to fight fire with fire? Well, fire. Feeds. When the latent desire of the oxygen in the atmosphere for the carbon in the bone dry trees or the bone dry timbers of which your house is made has been awakened, they normally repel each other, and the carbon and oxygen are beginning to set themselves free from the molecules that bind them and lock together in an embrace. When that desire is being consummated and they are floating heavenward, these CO2 molecules in a plume of soot and debris, all hell is being set loose on earth. Even a candle can generate the equivalent of a wind of 100 miles an hour at its base as oxygen is pulled in to feed that flame. It's a chain reaction. The more and more fuel that can be got more and more carbon that can be accessed, the more oxygen is needed and the more the combustion site spreads. Every fire is a little firestorm waiting to consume everything in its path. Now the trick of fighting fire with fire is to get ahead of the path of this intensifying inferno and destroy its supply of fuel get its carbon supply out of the way by burning it down first, creating a barrier, a bounded place where that fire can't spread and whip up its own firestorm or hopefully it will blow back if the wind is shifting. A trench or a river will do just fine and burn it down so that by the time the fire reaches that place, there's nothing more to burn. You have to sacrifice something, in other words, Give something up, some stand of trees or row of buildings in order to protect the city or the forest. I apply that analogy to our soul and our battle for holiness with unholiness. My words of advice to those who are tempted, and I try to remember them myself, who are struggling with temptation is don't fight it, but let it go as fast as you can. Stop struggling with what it is that attracts you, but for the heaven's sake, disengage yourself from it as fast as you can. Stop struggling with it, and stop struggling with your response to it, because there's no freedom in your response to temptation. Stop looking within. You're only getting more and more entangled. Disengage Release the object of your desire, whether it's in here or out there. How do you do that? This takes practice. And every day I can chart for you the missed opportunities to apply it, but it's the only way I know. You have to see the object of your desire as a subject. Sounds very philosophical. What I mean is you have to see the thing you want The thing about which you knew nothing yesterday and now is the thing you must have today. The thing that's going to validate your very existence as something, something good, and you don't try to diminish it or demonize its value and call what is good bad. That will get you nowhere. Something good which is meant for someone else's good. You have to see the thing that attracts you as really meant for someone else, for their good, to lead them to the God who is alone good. You have to take that thing and, in your mind, consecrate it. Give it back to God with thanks to give to somebody else. All right, sounds inviting. How does that work? (laughs) It works very well with people that might attract you or obsess you in some way or another. They may attract you, they may repel you, you may be trying inappropriately to connect with them, you may be trying maybe even appropriately to consign them to their own place of destruction. Either way, you're hooked on them, and they are an object to you, either to be gotten out of the way or to be set aflame with the fire of your own desires. You have to see that person who consumes you as a person. A subject with their own possibilities, their own potential, their own calling, their own desires. Well, no, better not think about that. But someone who has been made for God to give to someone else. Pray for him or her. Give thanks for the beauty of that person, for all that is good in them. This is essential. You must give thanks for that which is good. But pray for their happiness, for the good that the good God has invested in them. Pray that that good will lead them back to the heart of God who made them. Reconsecrate them. This applies to everything that we might think is ours already as well. Everything we thought was already accounted and given to us for our talent, our treasure, even especially our time, especially our time. Throw it all on the bonfire. Even as your desire to hang on and control your own life and the things in it begins to smolder out. But let your desire for the good things of this world and your delight in them set fire to your love for the God who made them. Let your own life, your own being, be consecrated and re-consecrated to God, to his service. You are not yours, after all. You're not your own. There's nothing in this world that belongs to us, least of all us. We have been bought at a price, and our life is not our own. It belongs to God and those whom in love he has called us to serve. Let this same a principle apply to that which you would quite happily consign to the flames. Those people and things that make your life hell. Consign them to God instead. To the one who made them and will ultimately set them down at a time and place of his choosing wherever they belong leave that to him so everything belongs to god our life's work is one of consecration of taking everything with which we are called to interact everything in this world and re-consecrating it to god to his good and his good purposes we give thanks then for everything that God has given into our hands, and we pray that he will help us in giving it back. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace. Be quieted. Be at rest. Be set free from the restlessness that drives and draws us from one thing to another, be delivered from the desire to possess. Set free rather those things you seek to have and to hold. Surrender them back to the one who made them and made you made us for his service to be his treasured possessions. Amen.